again, I'll just reiterate very, very quickly that the purpose of going through Revelation is not again to understand the symbolism nor necessarily the prophecy, though we will see that as we go. You know, I believe that the revelation was not only given so that we'd understand prophetically what was happening, but it was also designed to create an encounter with God right now. So we're looking within the book of Revelation for those things that are particularly relevant to our story, our situation right now. And that's what we're searching for as we go. So I'm studying differently than I've ever studied before. And I'm finding it amazing as I study this way. The church last week was a church in Thyatira, which commentators and writers say represented the strong rise in the Roman Catholic Church and the influence that the Roman Catholic Church had over so many years. So Sardis is coming on the heels of that as it's representing the time periods. The combination of easy money and loose morals had made the people of Sardis notoriously soft and seekers of pleasure. It was a city of decadence and the moral softness, I guess maybe a, a very, very relaxed atmosphere, uh, was the doom of Sardis on several different occasions. Uh, it, Sardis fell to King Cyrus in uh, 549 BC because Sardis was up on a hill and kind of believed to be impenetrable, that it, was, it had such natural defenses around it that no enemy could reach you. So the first time it was discovered how to make it to there by King Cyrus, how to actually get to the city. When they got there, the, the gates in the city were completely unguarded because they had become so complacent, so overconfident that they couldn't be reached. And King Cyrus took the city in just a matter of hours. About 250 years later, it was also taken by Antiochus Epiphanes for the exact same reason. They thought it, was, it had a natural defense system and it didn't. So one of the things that we began to recognize uh, as I was studying this, it was kind of strange to look at because when it talks about the church being a light set on a hill, and I don't want to stretch this too far because this, is, this, this can be over-spiritualizing of things, but it kind of hit me strangely that we have been described as the church, as this light set on a hill. And I know that we don't necessarily worry about the enemy reaching us, but there has become within the church the same moral softness. The boundaries are very, very blurred within where our convictions are. And what happens is we make ourselves within the church an easy prey because we leave the gates unguarded. We leave the city unprotected because of our overconfidence. We are designed as a church to be that light on the hill. But the enemy has found ways within, and, we're, and, and we'll talk about some of these tonight. We've been talking about it in each, in each church. Revelation 3, beginning with verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon you. Thou hast a few names, even as Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He that overcomes the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So there is the message to Sardis. And it is such a strange and mixed picture. To some, the news was all bad. To one, the news was kind of all good. Here we have a very, very mixed picture of what's actually occurring. But I want to tell you, this one, as I was studying it, even this afternoon, as I was going back over this, there are so many parallels between this church and Sardis and the state of the Christian church today. And we'll go through these kind of verse by verse, and I'll point them out as we get there. So I'll begin with verse one, and we'll kind of take this apart. And unto the angel of the churches in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. So Jesus describes himself in this passage using terms that emphasizes his character as the master of all things spiritual. 
He says, you know, this is coming to you. These things saith he that has the seven spirits of God. That's not seven unique spirits. He's using the word seven as the word complete. He's saying in me contains the entire reality of the spiritual realm, the spiritual authority of God. That's who's speaking to you. He's representing himself in this picture as the one who has full authority under all things spiritual. He's talking about power and he's talking about authority because he says it. He has the seven spirits of God. I spoke on this not too long. Well, it's probably been a year and a half or two years ago. Talking about the strange thing that occurs when you watch professional basketball. Same thing with professional football. That you watch these towering men who have unbelievable power. We watch them, whether it be in basketball or football, we watch them compete at a very, very intense level with great demonstrations of power. But what happens when the little guy or the little lady who has this striped shirt on, what happens when they blow the whistle? Everything stops. Why? Every one of those big guys could take these striped shirt people and pound them into the ground because they have that kind of power. What do the striped shirt people have? They have authority. You see, we gain authority by how we are dressed. Think about that for just a second. We gain authority by how we are dressed. If we dress like the world, if we try to be in a relationship with God that is defined by the world, we will realize quickly that we have no authority. What does it require? How are we to be dressed to have the authority of God? Clothed in his righteousness. We have to be clothed in his righteousness so for the world to pay attention. You know, this is one of these relevant truths that we need to get out of this. Because we lack authority within the Christian world. It begins, I've shared this many times and I know it begins to sound like a broken record. But we have taught for so long that becoming a Christian is a very easy thing. And we have reduced it to a couple of simple steps and repeat a prayer or say a prayer. We put a check by your name and, and call you a Christian. And it's one of the most unfortunate things that we do within the Christian world because there's not a single thing about that that makes you a Christian. And I know that begins to cause the wheels in our mind to turn. That's what I've always been taught. That's what I've, it's always been explained to me. But we miss something terribly. Jesus said it and, and it's, it's throughout the scripture. Unless a seed is put in the ground and what? and dies. What has to happen to us to be saved? What has to happen? We have to die. We have to die. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. What does that say? What, what's the first part of that? I have to be crucified as well. I have to die so that he can actually live so that what I'm living is not my righteousness because I died. It was his righteousness that now has come and taken its place in me. So if I'm clothed with his righteousness, then I have an authority to be able to stand and be able to speak by the word of God, by the power of, of God, by his authority, because I'm dressed properly with this striped suit of righteousness so that even the greatest powers have to yield to that authority. What happens though, if I try to be clothed in righteousness that I can generate, the good works that I can create, the good attempts at living a good life. What kind of authority do I have? We don't have any. And we wonder why the church has lost its power because the church has quit teaching that you have to die to be saved. You have to die every day so that he can live in you. It's not a one thing deal. It's a one time deal. It's an everyday deal. We die one time to be justified before God. We die daily so that he can come and live in us and through us to do what we can't do. So it requires our death each day to be sanctified because if we believe we can do it, we'll not let him do it. I mean, we get this message very, very quickly in this church that Jesus is telling them, I am your power. I am your authority. And if you think you have it, you will never have it. It has to come from me. It will never come from anywhere else. And it absolutely requires that we die one time to be justified as the children of God and every day so that we can live as the children of God. 
It's a teaching that is lost within the Christian church in the, the determination to perform. It was interesting, and I've never really studied this to, in great depth, but it is interesting that when we come through the New Testament, we don't hear of a church that has a building. We know that the synagogue did, we know that the temple did, but, we do, but within the church, kind of coming through the church, to the biblical period that we have a record here, I don't know if there's a church that says, we're going to go meet in the church building. How did they meet? What was commonly, much more common, how did they meet? They met in homes. You know, it was it, when churches, and I, I think it probably happened around the time of Constantine, I don't know that for sure. When Christianity became the religion of the world and took on this position of prominence, my suspicion is that sometime during that period, we moved into buildings. And guess what happens when you can move into buildings? You can start counting people. How many people did we have? You know, what hung on the walls of churches forever? This rec- I mean, it was right here and right over here, one Sunday morning over here and Sunday night over here. And you had attendance over there and how much money was given and all that kind of stuff. And we reported it. What was our attendance? And we would send it in ever so often into the convention and report attendance. But I remember in the Old Testament where God had this severe reproach of David because he was trying to count his men to see if he was adequate to go into battle. And the rebuke of God was serious. And he said, don't ever count your resources to determine whether we're capable or not. When we started counting people, awful things began to happen in the church. What did we suddenly need to do when we started counting people? We needed more people. So it became a very natural thing to make salvation as easy as possible, because if I can make it as easy as possible, I can count these as baptisms and we have new church members and the numbers are looking better. And pastors were graded by how those numbers looked. I tell you, there's been some awful things done, some terrible things done in in church under the name of performance, because, and it took away how we were dressed. We were no longer dressed in his righteousness that gave us authority. We wonder what's happened in the church today. We wonder why we've lost our relevance within the world today. Why is nobody listening to the church? It's because of how we're dressed. It's interesting in culture to watch it. How many parents, even Christian parents, begin to dress like their children? We are a culture determined that our look will be what our kids look like. The position of prominence that that has taken. If we want to have authority, and Jesus is saying, I am it. I am the completeness of it. If you're going to have it, you're going to have it because you're dressed in me. You're going to have to wear me if you're going to have authority. You can't do it otherwise. He continues. Again, we know that the number seven represents completeness. So he's talking about all that fullness. And then he says, I know thy works. Thou hast the name that you live and you're dead. Now, this is one of those situations that just sound like it's setting up such a tremendous conflict in what he just said. But the name there he's talking about is is simply, you have a reputation. And you're living up to that reputation is what he's saying. Well, the reputation for the church at Sardis was that they they were famed for their spiritual vitality. When you looked at that church, this was not a church that you look at sitting on the corner and the building's being run down and and the, the people aren't showing up. And you can say, well, that church is dying. This church put on and demonstrated the vitality that any church would envy. I mean, this, this is a church that was looking from the outside and everyone's opinion as if it was a strong, tremendously vital church. Again, I can step one step up onto my soapbox because the compromises that are being made today within the Christian world to build these mega churches, and I'm not speaking out against all of them. Some of them are wonderful churches. But many are being built upon the backs of compromise because they have to be pleasing. They can't say it. And again, I shared this with y'all a couple of weeks ago. I was in this conversation and they said, well, give us an example. So I made a statement and it was like immediately within that room of about six or eight people, there was immediate kind of backing away from what I said. I said, say that in one of these churches that's got eight to 10,000 members and see how many you have next week. I said, was what I said the truth? Yes. What happens if you say that in one of those mega churches? It won't be a mega church very long. You can't say those things. We talked about that in one of the churches last week. Sardis was famed for everything that you could possibly want. If you look through the church of the city, there were signs of life and there were signs of abundance. 
However, the one who could search their heart, the one who could truly see what was going on, he pronounced over them, you're dead. Now, notice this says, and art dead. He didn't say dying. He says, as a church, the one that I, that I look at, that I'm examining right now, from my position is I examine each one of these candlesticks as I stand in this place and observe. And my summation of you as a church is that you are dead. I wish truly as, as a relevant truth, I wish churches would do a deep search within themselves and recognize that we are going through the motions and we look vital within the community. We've got a lot of things going on. We've got a lot of, you know, we, we have a lot of people engaged in what we do and recognize in what Jesus was saying. But my summation of you and of all of your activity is that you are dead. I have a feeling, a great supposition, because if you remove, and this is the key, if you look across that church and you see a lot of activity, but you never see anything happening supernatural, you can guarantee that place is dead. Why? What's the obvious answer to that? Everything Jesus did that put God on display was demonstrated in the supernatural. Everything. Even the teaching that Jesus was teaching was a supernatural reality to people who had never heard such things taught before. We've talked about it in here many times, that the basis of a family in that day and time was tradition. Husbands didn't love wives because they were supposed to, because it wasn't love. It was tradition. And so here's Jesus coming and saying the basis of everything is love. I want to tell you that was as foreign to them and the, the reaction to it brought a supernatural change within generations and generations and generations. Even the teaching that Jesus was speaking from his father was a supernatural reality into the ears that were hearing it. There was not a single thing that Jesus did that didn't put the supernatural on display. So when you watch a church that's going through a lot of motions, a lot of things going on, and there's a lot of activity going on, and you never see the reality or the expectation of the supernatural, I have a feeling that the pronouncement over that church would be, you're dead. Because where is the evidence of me? Everything is explained by your energy, by your plans, by your desires, by your interests, by your ministries. Everything is defined by your capability. Where am I? Where do you see the Spirit of God? I have a lady that she comes and sees me every week and she's going to a church in uh, Plainview and she has a very strict denominational background. I think she grew up Church of Christ, but I don't know that for sure. But she's noticing that these blankets that were slid under the seats, she thought, well, how thoughtful that they're providing these blankets for people who get cooling. And her friend said, that's not really what those are for. And she said, what are they for? And she said, well, when someone's slain in the spirit, they, they need to be covered up. And, and so she's saying, okay, took me just about 10 steps out of my comfort zone, but she said it was a strange reality to recognize that I'm sitting in a church whose expectation is that every Sunday that God's going to show up and be God. When you walk in, you have an expectation that the Spirit of God is going to become the Spirit of God, and you're going to see the reality of Him when He shows up, to come with that expectation. Well, I want to tell you, I wish that we had the courage within the Christian world to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, what would God's pronouncement be over us? Even this church, what would God's pronouncement be? Would he say, I'm well pleased? Or would he say something as he's saying to one of these churches, you're going through lots of motions, but you're dead. Man, we ought to examine ourselves. We ought to examine our own personal life to ask that same question. Am I going through a lot of religious activity? Again, I, I think I shared this with you last week, but it's a guy was being introduced to the, for the first time to body, soul, and spirit. And he said it was interesting because in the introduction of that book, it was, I, I told him the same thing before he shared this with me, but he said in the introduction of that book, there was this warning. He says, when you understand this, it's going to mess up your religious life. And it truly will. Because it's hard to be religious when you understand the work of the Holy Spirit. It's very hard to maintain this religious spirit when the Holy Spirit begins to speak. So Sardis wouldn't represent the church that was obviously dead. It would be more likely, again, a busy church with meetings every day, committees in abundance, buildings being built, promotions and publications going out on a regular basis. It wasn't the one that's drying up and losing its members, and you're wondering what's happening to that church. This one, by all measures, would be a terribly affluent and successful church. 
And then he says again, you are dead. The relevant truth is that activity does not guarantee spiritual life or true spiritual character. We have to get that absolute disconnect. Activity does not in any way indicate a, a level of spirituality in a church and within an individual. That has to change. I, I remember Mike and I had a conversation years ago when Dale was still here and he, was, he came to me and said, Randy, I don't understand what's happening. When Dale came, we were talking about taking the pews out and putting it in chairs so we could handle so much, many more people. And he, he said, now we're sitting here and said people are just, have just left and left and left and left. And I said, yeah, Mike, isn't it great? And he looked at me kind of funny. And I said, Mike, what God's doing, he's switching us over from a performance church to a church of obedience, moving us away from performance and moving us to obedience. And suddenly it made sense what God was doing. At that time, I hadn't had the revelation that I'd had that I was supposed to be the next pastor. I was just sharing that with him because that was very obvious to me that God had a purpose for this church, that these steps were absolutely necessary. Things that, that were very easy to consider, well, this is just not going well. This is a total failure. This is a mess. What do we do to turn this around? And what, what God was doing is he was preparing this church to move away from the need for activity so that we could actually slow down long enough to hear the voice of God and respond in obedience to what he was saying. And I can tell you, I haven't regretted that becoming the pastor nine years ago. I haven't regretted all that happened a single bit. When I share with people today, and I feel very free to do it. When I talk about the supernatural things that God has done here, the things that there's no, absolutely no explanation for outside of the reality of God, I can say it with an absolute certainty that what happened was we heard the voice of God, we listened for, for that voice, we heard it, we responded in obedience, and the supernatural reality came to light. I don't have any hesitation to tell people the reality of the supernatural presence of God. And I hope you don't either but I hope it's your story. I hope it's something that you were involved in, that you have your own personal history because of your engagement with the Holy Spirit, that you're telling it, not because you heard it. You're telling it because you were involved in it. You know, for Shorty and Teresa to, to know absolutely that they were supposed to tithe on that farm sale. I've heard the, from the auctioneer that they expected it to be 250, a little, maybe a little more than that thousand dollars for the sale of that equipment. And for us to need $42,000 to send that team to Africa, that there's a very clear vision that they were supposed to go. I can't make these things line up. I can't make these things happen. I knew what the need was. I didn't know what their decision was. I didn't know what the plan was. But for that equipment to sell for $420,000 on a farm sale when everybody should have stayed home, it was so cold and miserable. For the equipment to sell for what it did, I can tell that story and say with absolute certainty, there is the presence of God. There's the work of God doing something that we could not explain and could not account for. Another trip to Africa when, you know, Max and Debbie were going and they, they needed $15,000 for their tickets. I'd already said to God, I'm not involving this church. This, that's for them to do. That is for them to raise, for them to figure out. So I had already taken made my mind up, said, this is not happening. And again, I can go to my backyard and put my feet in the tracks where I was standing. And this one was odd because this was the first time God had ever told me, you need to listen, I'm about to speak. So I'm standing there in the backyard with something, a rake or something in my hand. And I mean, I get as still as I can possibly get. And he said, I want the church to pay for their tickets. And my answer was no. And it took me just a minute to recognize what I had done. So we, the next Sunday, took up that offering. And the offering that was given was $15,700. And it kind of puzzled me. Again, we took it up and Max told us that night, he said, Randy, it was interesting that it came out to 15,700 because he said, we had, we had raised $700 ourselves. That's all the money we had toward this trip. He said, last week somebody came by and needed some money. We gave them the $700. So God not only bought the tickets, he, get, he reimbursed them the $700 that they'd given away. I can't orchestrate that stuff. I can't make that happen. I can't sit in my office and watch people's lives being transformed. To be able to lay down years and years and generations of brokenness, to stand up in freedom and to be able to walk in a new life that they haven't experienced in so many years. There is nothing about that except God. I mean, you need your own personal history with God not testimonies that you've heard some, that you can hear somebody say, as valuable as those are, 
You need your own testimony. You need to be able to pick up this word and begin to read and let the Holy Spirit take something that you just read and make it explode within your heart so that you'll know that you just had an encounter with him. So that becomes part of your history. I was sitting here reading this and God made these words explode to me. You started building a page within your own personal history with God. We all need it because we can't run off of the testimonies that we've heard somebody else share. The Holy Spirit is personal to you, in you, working through you, creating the the reality of God's presence in you. You need your own personal history and he has no reason to not speak to you so that you don't have that history. Activity does not guarantee spiritual life or spiritual character. Despite their great appearance, Jesus saw the true condition of that church. Listen to this. This is powerful. He said, you're dead. How successful is a dead man in a fight? Dead indicates no struggle, no fight, no resistance. Sardis wasn't losing the battle. Sardis had lost the battle. They weren't losing. They lost it. There is no encouragement to stand. There's no encouragement to stand and fight against an enemy, to stand and fight against persecution, to stand and fight against false doctrine. There was no anger in them within the church from which to muster a fight because to them, everything seemed well. Think about that in the condition of the church, large churches, small churches. Why is there no need to consider how we're doing? Because everything seems to be going well. There's no place to even muster a fight because why would we want to change anything? I learned in the oil field many years ago and I I was watching this guy and he'd say, well, well, let's let's just pull lever B. It took me a while to get the connection what he was actually doing because he was kind of picturing we're going to pull this lever B and we're going to lever B. Yeah, just just pull lever B. Well, he meant it. We're not going to touch a single thing. We're not, we're going to leave it just like it is. I can tell you that that's become the nature of the church. You know, in teaching the Bible study in Lubbock a couple of years ago now, for that pastor who had been a pastor for 40 years or in the music or pastor for 40 years to come up to me and say, I've never heard this stuff taught. And to watch the excitement as it began to build in them, as they began to hear truth that was relevant to them and life changing as they began to understand it. Most churches, they can't muster a fight because there's no anger in them. I wrote down a couple of quotes out of a couple of commentaries. One of them, a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. You never be offended by that church. You could walk in and get along. You would never be offended by anything they said, anything they taught, bothered by any truth that they shared. They were not going to offend you. Another one, it was not scandalous wickedness, but decent death. The form retained, but the heart was gone. It looked like a church, acted like a church, but the heart was gone. It reminded me of this scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than the lovers of God, having a form of godliness. This is the part that gets us. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. Church after church, and I'm not speaking of denominations, churches, have a form of godliness, but have denied the power that was supposed to come with it. You know, again, I I have one testimony in this mind. It's the only one I know. I can't go back and do church again. I have to come expecting that God's going to be God. That when we walk in, he has a plan to change and transform lives. That he has a plan to heal that he has a plan to bring such relevant truth that somebody's going to hear it and their lives are going to be changed, opened. Revelations come that God is going to walk into this presence and going to do what we have no chance of doing in transforming those lives. Kate stood up, you know, two weeks ago and was talking about this sword that she and Ryan had been prophesied that they held, a sword of fire. And with that sword, they could cut away those things that were untrue about people. You know, we watch that unfold in here, but I get to hear the stories of what happens when the people come into my office and say, you wouldn't believe what happened to me the day after that happened. And all of a sudden this stuff that had been cut away from me and I was actually free, the things that occurred to me the next day, 
what I was able to do, what I was able to see, what I, where I was able to go, simply because something had been cut away that was untrue about me that I'd believed a long time. Repentance. Powerful, powerful pictures within this. Verse two, be watchful and strengthen those things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. He's saying with what, with, in what I see. This is an interesting picture because he pronounced over the church, you're dead. But he's saying, I can see veins within this body that are still functioning. And even some that he's going to talk about in a minute that are functioning very, very well. He said, I see some that, have, that their garments aren't tarnished. The garments are not stained. So he begins to see within this dead body, this one stream of life that seems to be appearing in it. Over the church, he doesn't tell them that they have a great deal of hope. But he says within it, be watchful. And again, what had gotten... Sardis destroyed two other times was that they forgot to watch. They became so complacent that they forgot to watch. It says, and strengthen those things which remain. The things that are still there that are good, strengthen those things because they are also ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. So again, be watchful is the first instruction that Jesus gives this church with the further instruction to strengthen those things that are left. Spiritually, there were things that remained, but were also ready to die. And I love this phrase. I have not found thy works perfect before God. We talked about this at length on Sunday morning when I'm teaching in, in Bible study on Sunday morning. If God made the creation perfect, and I don't think any one of us would deny that, that when he finished the creation and we began to try to find adjectives to describe what he's done, you know, we can say beautiful, we can say peaceful, we can, we can use a thousand words, but it doesn't seem like any word captures what he has done like the word perfect. He made it perfect. Well, we have strangely somehow within the Christian world lost the expectation that the creation like the creator was perfect so that we, the created, what should our expectation be? If the creation was perfect and we are part of that created part what does he expect of us? Perfection, absolute perfection from us. And we have reduced in the Christian world, all of this teaching about perfection as the target that we're supposed to try to hit. Something that we're supposed to try to accomplish to get as close to this as we possibly can. But our confession out of our own mouths as believers is that I can't be perfect. Nobody's perfect. Well, I would certainly say within our own actions, within our own thoughts, that's actually true. I can't. But the expectation of me is that I am perfect. Matthew says it, be ye therefore perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. Is that a suggestion or is that an instruction that this is how we're supposed to live? It's an instruction, but we have to switch this reality. This is why we have to recognize the need to die. Because if someone was going to create something that was perfect, who do you think we would have to at least confess? It was also going to have to be the person who could maintain that perfection. Would it be us? Absolutely not. The person who created perfection in the first place, if it's going to be maintained, it has to be maintained by him. So what's the expectation of us? He says, I have found your works not to be perfect. Well, in Colossians 1, the instruction is, and the secret was Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we do this so that we can present every man perfect before God. If we have a chance of attaining this perfection that he's expecting us to have, how do we attain it? We let the one who formed creation perfectly be the one who also maintains it where in me. If I let him do in me what only he can do using these hands to do it, using this mouth to speak it, using these feet to go with, using this heart to love with, these ears to hear with, this mind to think with. If I surrender this in death to him to let him come live in me, which is what he wants in the first place so that he can put on display himself. So that at the end of the day, we see him and not us. He's the one who created perfection, who's also has a great desire to maintain that perfection in us. It's not a hard concept. It's not a hard recipe to follow. But what keeps us from being there? We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about the teachings of Watchman Nee. What gets in the way? My outer man, my soul man, my emotional man, 
the one that makes up the mind, the will, and makes these decisions gets in the way of, this, of the inner man, the spirit man, who is trying to tell us how to follow God, be what he intends us to be, be obedient to him. There's always a contest between my outer man and my inner man. Until that outer man is broken, the inner man will be thwarted. God's always in the business of breaking our outer man so that that inner man can live. And by that inner man, we can put on display by God, by him in us, the very evidence of a perfect work. We are supposed to be perfect. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Perfection is the expectation. Verse three, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon you. They need to remember that which brought them from life to death in the first place And the key again is repentance. He's saying, I want you to remember you were dead once. What brought you out of that death into life? I want you to remember. And when you remember it, I want you to repent. Again, I have taught this for two weeks on Sunday morning and I don't want to stress it very much, but I want to, I'm not going to say which commentary I was reading from. It's not relevant, but I've taught you many times now over the last couple of years that our teaching that repent meant to turn is absolutely untrue. I've got a copy of it. You can come up here and read it out of the Strong's Concordance, what that word repent actually means. The teaching that we have said is I'm doing something wrong and I'm going to turn and now I'm doing something right is a false teaching. But I read this commentary and this is what it said. They must hold fast to those things and to repent by turning and restoring the gospel and apostolic doctrine to authority over their lives. As wrong a teaching as you could possibly find within that commentary. Saying again that the word repent means to turn and go back to something that they once had. Again, right here, you can see it. If you were close enough, within the strong concordance, it says right there, repent means to change your mind. What was it going to take for this remnant within this church to make any difference? They were dying. If you don't want them to, you have to change your mind. If you continue the way that you're going, the outcome will be the same. Repent will be the key. If you don't watch, if you don't see it coming, he says, I'll come upon you as a thief and you won't know the hour that I'm coming. He's saying there will be a judgment for you as a church if you don't repent. So he warns them with great danger. What will happen if they fail to watch? The consequence is that he will come with immediate judgment. Verse four, that has a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Even among the dead in Sardis, there is a faithful remnant. And here's one of those relevant truths that we need to take out of this, this meaningful for you and I today. If God said within the scripture that I have done this so that you could be one. In, in John 20, in, in, in verse 17, when Jesus begins in this prayer, He's prayed for himself and he prayed for the disciples and he starts praying for us. For all that will believe, I pray that they will be one. Did God answer that prayer? Did Jesus simply make a suggestion to God and say, I hope that you'll work this out. I hope you'll work this out so that the people will get along and we can, and within the church, they will be one. Is that what, was he making a suggestion? Absolutely not. Jesus was speaking the will of his father by the reality of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way he would ever pray in the first place. He was only going to pray what the will of the father was because the Holy Spirit had told him and he's beginning to pray. And and the whole piece of that, that the church would be one father, just as you and I are one. If that wasn't a suggestion and God answered that prayer, the church of the New Testament is in dire trouble because we are tolerating division on every level. And God has said, The church, the true church is one. And you'll find within the hearts of these people that runs like a river through all denominations, through all people groups and through all nations, you're going to find this river of people and they're going to be united. And when you meet them, you won't care what denomination they are. You can sit down next to a plane and you realize after talking to somebody for 10 minutes, you'd lay down your life for them because there's a connection that God has established and, I, and that is the true church. Again, I, I know that sounds awful. It's like, well, Randy kind of reduced this to a very negative picture. I didn't reduce it to anything. If people don't have the heart within them that is formed by the Holy Spirit, because the spirit in me should be compelled to love the spirit in you, to be able to tolerate division 
says, I am living contrary to what Jesus prayed and that God answered. The spirit in me that I've chosen to come let live in me will always live in agreement with the spirit that lives in you. We may disagree on a physical level. We may disagree on a soulish level. But the unity that God wants to create, that creates this oneness that Jesus prayed for and God gave is still relevant and truthful within the church today. And you'll find it, but it's not according to a denominational line. Again, I would dare anyone to show me within this book where we got denomination. I can't find it. It may be there, but, but I can't find it. History will tell us how we got here, but the scripture doesn't tell us how we got here. You go to Ephesians chapter two and you start reading through there and Jesus is saying, I came so that I could tear down the walls of partition between you so that I've done that to destroy those things so that there will be no walls between you. Yes, there's a wall. You've got separation from you in the world, but there is not a single place for division within the church. And I, I believe what's being described in, this, in Sardis, this one thread that runs through this church. And he's saying, I see that this group of people within this church that I pronounce to be dead, but they have been able in their faith, in their connection, in their love for me, by the reality of the Holy Spirit, they have been able to maintain themselves as a church. And he, I, I believe he's recognizing the true church is a united church that lives a very faithful life before the Father. He says, and they have not defiled their garments. A garment always pictures a testimony. When the man fell among thieves as he was leaving Jerusalem, going to Jericho, why did the thieves take his clothes? Even though he was left half dead, he couldn't, he couldn't take his life. Why did they take his clothes? What do clothes represent? It is the outward testimony of what's happening inside of us. The garment is always telling the outside picture of the inward reality of all of us. It's our testimony. He's saying these people's testimony has gone undefiled. They have not surrendered. They have not yielded. They haven't become lazy and complacent within the story. And he says, I recognize them. I acknowledge them. It's a picture of a pure testimony, an identity before the Lord. How they were dressed again represents their hearts. White garments are the garments of victory to the Romans, but also the colors of the wedding dress and the purity sought for the bride that would be his. The remnant will be dressed in white. There is a hard teaching that it's even hard for me to teach. It's one of those things that just sits out on the edge that I just don't mention very often because the, the teaching has been so long that the church is the bride of Christ. It's just not true. Scripturally, it's just not true. The church is not the bride of Christ. It doesn't say that we're, that we're not saved. Listen to the scripture and see what it does say that the church is. This is Colossians 1 beginning with 23. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which, which was preached to every creature, which is under heaven, whereof I am, I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is, is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. What is the church? It is the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. Where did the bride come from? Old Testament Genesis, where did the bride come from? She was what? Taken out of Adam. Where will we find the bride of Christ? Taken out of his body, taken out of the church. There is a group within the church, all saved. I'm not contending salvation, but there will be a group that will be the body of Christ. And out of that body will come, as we saw in the Old Testament, out of that body will come this bride. We saw it. We know it. We read the scriptures about it all the time. When we read about the 10 virgins, was that representing lost and saved? Absolutely not. All of them virgins, all of them having lamps, all of them having light because their lamps were on, all of them slept. So we're not talking about five that were lost and five that were saved. We're talking about a difference between five that were saved and the other five that were saved. The five that when the, when the bridegroom came, they got to go in, the other ones had to stay outside. What's going on here? We're recognizing a difference even within the church that there is a difference between those who are saved and those who have a desire to have intimacy with God. How do we have intimacy? What has he provided so that we can have an intimate relationship with him? Sent the Holy Spirit. There will be no intimacy without the Holy Spirit. So just a guarantee. If that parable tells us, what did the five who got to go in, what was the difference? This is Matthew 25. What was the difference? More oil. They not only had oil in their lamps, which was going out, those five that got to go in had an abundance of oil because they also had oil in a vessel. What well, if I believe what I believe is that oil represents the, the Holy Spirit, 
They had an abundance of, of oil. They had an abundant relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, which made them have this intimacy with God, which allowed them to go in. The other five still saved, didn't get to. The Bible tells us repeatedly that there's a difference within the church between those who were saved and those who have an intimate relationship with him by the Holy Spirit. If we've got the courage to teach it, it's just so much easier to say, well, we're all the bride of Christ and we're all going to, this is what's going to happen to all of us. It's just not in here. It's just not here. We are the body of Christ. We are his body out of his body. Just as it was with Adam, the bride will come and it will be because of some very unique things. He that overcomes the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I'm glad that I believe what I believe and about the, the security of the believer, because this opens up a door that is hard to close because he's saying in this, and I believe this with all my heart. And I've understood this two different ways. And David and I have had this conversation before that the names of people are written in the Lamb's book of life and they have to be erased, not added. But when I read this, that's not what this says. This says to those who overcome, to those that I'm speaking to within the church of Sardis, that is this group that has been undefiled. Again, not contesting that all the people, in, people within the church of Sardis are saved. I'm not talking about salvation here. He's saying for those and only that group that, is, that, that I'm talking about are these overcomers the same that will be clothed in the white raiment, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. It was very common within the Roman culture. If somebody died or somebody was cast out of the city, that their name would be blotted out of the record of who lived within that city as if they had never been there before. But again, notice he's only speaking to the overcomers. Only to that group will I not blot out their names. Well, again, my reasons for believing the secure of the believer are found in many more verses than this, but this one alone certainly creates a question. The difference between the dead majority, which most of the church honestly is made up of, the dead majority with imperfect works as described here, but who had a good reputation. Think of who that is. How many people within the church have a good reputation, but live within the dead majority? The difference between that group and the few that were pleasing to God was closeness with Jesus. That was it. That was the one thing. And again, this is a closeness that's only made possible by the Holy Spirit, the oil, as we talked about in the lamp of these virgins. The dead reality and the spiritual facade of most Christians in Sardis was related to lives not connected with the Savior. Going through the motions of doing what churches are supposed to do with no connection to God simply doing what churches do. But those who overcome are assured this heavenly position. And then the, the last one, verse six, the way he's ended each one of these. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. If we're going to recover in America, around the world, if churches are going to recover, if we're going to once again be relevant, it's going to be because we have listened carefully to this verse that is written in all seven letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Where do most people go to try to figure out what's happening in a church? What do they trust? We trust the wisdom of men. We trust the wisdom of women. We'll send out surveys. Ask, how did this go? Again, you've heard me say this before, but there's a reason why you have no ability to electronically communicate back with the church why our webpage doesn't have an opportunity for somebody who's listened to a sermon to give me comments back or to give the church comments back. Why do I not want any of it? Why do we not have a Facebook page where people can make comments about messages? I do not have any desire to be led by the opinions of men. And there's no way when you read something that you've offended someone, they don't like the teaching, man, it's almost impossible to not try to adjust to what you just read. It's something in our wiring. We don't want to offend. Man, when we start getting that feedback, I've known pastors who've handed out surveys about how well they're doing. Give me suggestions. You're not going to get one of those from me. You might create one and send it to me, but you're not going to get one on my behalf. If you don't like what I'm doing, you can take it up with me or take it up with God and he'll be glad to deal with it. But I am not going to put myself in a position where I begin to try to react to you because the only success we're going to ever have as a church is if we do what this last verse says, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. Let him listen to the voice of the Spirit of God. 
He's the only one who can lead us into truth. Everything else will be an opinion. Jesus said it himself when he was asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? What did they offer him first? Well, you're Elijah. You're this or you're that. What were they offering him? Opinions. Until he heard from Peter. And then what did he say back to Peter? Why are you blessed, Peter? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But it was revealed to you by my father, which is in heaven. How did Peter know the truth? God told him. Everybody else was left with an opinion. That's what's happened in church. We're left with opinions of men and hear rarely from the spirit of God. Lord, thank you for tonight and thank you for the opportunity to examine this church. Lord, we know that what we're reading was you reviewing churches and they, it just seems heavy and it seems difficult. But Lord, if we don't have the ears to hear and, and learn from these, we are destined to live this same life to go through a lot of religious activity and to be very busy. And we watch churches do it all across this nation and all across the world. They create busyness, making sure that the committees are meeting, making sure that the classes are full, making sure that they have programs and ministries to offer. And Lord, we speak blessings and goodness over them if they've done it in obedience to you. But if they haven't heard you and they're not doing it in obedience, it's just the best that the men and women can come up with. And we know the outcome It's going to bring death because the one whose name is life has been left out. It has no direction to go because we didn't invite and listen first to the one whose name and identity is life itself. The outcome will always be the same. We can put a lot of energy into many things, but it will ultimately die if it didn't originate with the one whose name is life, the one who can sustain life, sustain perfection. I pray, Lord, that we would listen carefully to the Spirit of God as you, as you speak to us, that we celebrate these moments and recognize, Lord, that your hand is so deeply in this. We imagine this in this reality of a thousand miracles. Again, not a thousand miracles for this church, but a thousand miracles per person within this church in the smallest ways, in the largest ways. But you know, in Bev's note, Lord, when you, you read it, you know it. She's standing and saying praise to God for the miracles, the year of a thousand of them. And we just stand with her and say, amen and amen and amen in agreement that we live in the majesty of a thousand miracles. Let us expect them, seek them, watch for them as we watch you, Lord, by person by person in small and, and large ways, fulfill this promise of a thousand miracles. We love you. We trust you. There's nowhere else to go. Where would we go to find truth? Where would we go to find that authority? Where would we go to find life if we don't turn to you? Thank you, Lord, that you've promised that you'd never leave us or forsake us. And that when we search, we, would, we will search and find you quickly because you are there. Your presence always with us. Let us turn quickly and find you and listen to you and follow you in obedience. Thank you, Lord, for this church and for this opportunity that you give Jan and I. Thank you for the way that we're loved and cared for. We know it's from you. We know the provision is from you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.